Well, welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And Brad, I know we mentioned earlier that we are uh, kind of starting what we're calling a new season, although we haven't been real seasonal with the, with the podcast, but it's going to be our effort here to sort of make things regular, uh, a weekly sort of uh, basis. Yeah, and you know, we talked last week, we were talking with Dave Nikolai about the effect of how dry it was this summer and the drought, and of course, all it took was for us to record that and then to get some large rainfalls uh, that were fairly widespread across Minnesota, but uh, I think we're going to try and just kind of stay on that same theme because there's there's a lot to be le- uh, learned based on what happened this summer. And it, yeah, being an abnormal year, it's always interesting. People are interested in talking about, hearing about what uh, experiences were had. And uh, so today we uh, we're actually sitting at the Southern Research and Outreach Center, uh, and have two guests with us today, uh, uh, both the scientists here at the at the Research and Outreach Center. So we've got Jeff Fetch, hello, and Tom Hoverset, hello. And uh, they've been a mainstay here for, for many, many years, uh, you know, covering agronomy and weed science research, as well as uh, nutrient management and soils and water and that, that sort of thing. So, uh, but we thought we'd sit down today to talk about um, more about the weather, I guess, uh, some of what uh, uh, they do in terms of recording weather and monitoring uh, uh, weather, as well as some of the experiences that have been had throughout the, the season. Yeah, and I think a lot of farmers, if you're uh, from southern Minnesota and you've attended the SROC events uh, over the years, you're well aware of the, the weather station that is here uh, and the weather data and the interpretation of that weather data. Uh, and so that's, that's I guess, uh, something every, most everybody's aware of, but I think we want to go a little deeper into that as far as uh, dissecting uh, a little bit of what we've had this year, but then we're going to talk a little bit more about how we're going to use the information going forward, uh, get into a little more detail about some of the, uh, the measurements that are available and how they're, how they're measured and maybe what some of the uh, uses and, as well as shortcomings of those are. And then uh, we'll also kind of look uh, at, at how individuals can access that information as well as uh, what's available statewide. So maybe, Brad, you want to start by mentioning a project you've been working on most recently, the uh, Nitrogen Smart. Everybody's familiar with that program and in, in its iterations throughout the years. It's, you know, hit different tub- topics or subject matter. And most recently, you've been kind of dialing in on uh, climate or weather-based uh, uh, information. You're kind of in the... the process of creating that uh, that version of this program yeah we're we're in the thick of things right now we've got a technician who works on campus who's been uh, accumulating data historic data from around the state and then uh, producing different products for us uh, uh, related to a lot of the factors that are relevant to nitrogen management I think most folks realize that soil temperature is important soil moisture status is important uh, uh, when it when we saturate the soil is extremely important because the loss processes of nitrogen are water driven uh, but there's also things relative to growing season and, and individual rainfall events uh, uh, whether we're likely to experience uh, soil conditions that prevent us from getting out in the field that's a particularly pertinent if we're looking at side dress applications and so forth. So we've been kind of mining the state's climate database. And one of the issues that we always, all of us have 
relative to working in agriculture and research is taking what happened in the past and then interpreting it to the future. And of course, because no one's got the crystal ball yet, and, and we all realize that weather is one of the biggest variables that are out there. Uh, but to some extent, we can look at what the trends have been, and we can also take kind of take a look at probability, how often things happen, as well as you can look at existing conditions and see what uh, kind of adjustments in management uh, you might need to make uh, uh, based on what the current conditions are. And so that's all the sorts of things that we're exploring right now with this session that we uh, hope to be out and, and delivering to farmers come uh, February, March. Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully we, we uh, get there. And, um, but I think the other, the other side of that coin is going to be uh, looking moving forward if farmers are going to be adapting that level of management, then they're also going to sort of have to be in touch with the data because uh, you're not necessarily going to have this spoon fed to you. You're probably going to have to go out and kind of find this stuff out. And we realize that there's a lot of differences uh, as you move across the landscape. Um, particularly this summer, we uh, realize what wide differences there's been in rainfall precipitation amounts. Uh, you see that in, in dry summers, particularly where one area uh, got an inch and a half and you go 10 miles away and they got two tenths, you know. So, so we'll talk a little bit about accessing that data and using it. So uh, good point there. And I imagine some of the data collection that uh, that you mentioned that's happening right now for that particular project, uh, some of that's coming from the Southern Research and Outreach Center. And I know I get an email uh, weekly, I believe, uh, through the SROC uh, that Tom actually puts together sort of a, a synopsis of, of what current conditions are and how they differ from what we've seen in the past. And so that is one of the resources we wanted to mention today. Yeah. and, and it, Historically, uh, the the agronomy and the soils side have kind of watched over the weather station here, which is why we have Jeff and Tom here uh, to talk about this. Uh, I know uh, just in the last few years, Jeff, the uh, the uh, SROC actually received recognition from the National Weather Service or from NOAA uh, regarding the length of service that the the weather station has been in play here. Uh, maybe you want to tell us uh, what the what the uh, length of uh, the database you have available here is. Actually, Tom will probably have to correct me if I get it wrong. I believe we're at 106 years, or is it 107? My access to daily records goes back to mid-1914, somewhere in the middle of that year. So we have over 100 years of daily weather records, and that's now it's kind of automated. I'm in the fortunate position, uh, Jeff and his... Uh, scientist Kyle Howling take care of the equipment so all I have to do is download their information and like Ryan said weekly I try to put together a little bit about what we're seeing in the field here relate it to what crop conditions are and we do that through the season if you're interested in receiving that it's very easy go to the SROC website I think there's a, a button there you can click to uh, get on our list for getting that weekly weather update and we've been doing it for quite a few years giles randall former soil scientist did it weekly and he found himself coming to me and saying what do you see out there and i would do a little piece and pretty soon uh, i was doing more and he was doing less and then he retired so now i take care of it we do have some as tom mentioned some measurements that are still done by hand um, one of those is our, we have an eight inch rain gauge that we measure by hand. Um, and we do the snow, uh, not only depth, 
um, on a given snowstorm, but also the amount of snow that's on the ground, and then we melt it down to get a precip. So there are still some hand measurements, but as Tom said, the majority of it now is fairly automated. It has been for many years. And maybe you guys want to just give a run-through of what all the data that is currently collected uh, is uh, out from the weather station. Sure. So we have... Uh, we record temperature and the data logger records it air temperature and all the other measurements on on a five second interval now the standard i think ge hydrogeologic um people probably don't care about this but some people might is a 15 minute increment that's when they're looking at like precip over time and looking at erosive potential but we've found that that probably is more specific and more detailed than we need. So we go on the hour. So everything is summarized on the hour and we have data by the hour for just about everything, um, including air temp, soil temp, precip, solar, you name it. We have it all on the hour increment and we summarize it daily and that's what gets put on our website. And you know, this is one of the things that, that is done traditionally throughout the weather service uh, personal recordings is that it's summarized at eight o'clock. So it's the 24 hour period before 8 a.m. So if we record a precip event at 8 a.m. today, it was actually the last 24 hours. Now, if you talk to the TV weather people or what, listen to the TV weather news, sometimes you'll notice that they talk about it at midnight and that is the way some record it. So back to your question, Brad, what do we have? We have air temperature, max min. Um, we have soil temperatures at two, four, 8, 20, and 40-inch um, depths, and those are on bare soil. Now, there's some inconsistencies. Some people do it under turf or sod. Uh, I think Lamberton has both. Um, Twin Cities weather recorders, I think, do it under sod. We also have solar radiation, uh, wind speed, and total wind, or what we record as wind run, or in miles for a 24-hour period. And Tom, am I missing anything? Relative humidity. I think humidity, and I think you touched on it. There's a tipping bucket rain gauge out there, but you've deemed those not acceptable for long-term records. There's a lot of times when it rains quite hard that they're not quite accurate, so they still go to the visual rain gauge that uh, same thing they've been using probably since the 1940s. We actually rec report the tipping bucket gauge for each event as well, but I don't believe it put it's put on our website, but it's in our recorded file. For the sake of, uh, of the listeners, I'll explain. A tipping bucket gauge has got a, a cone shape to it, so it, it concentrates the water into a small opening and then drops it onto a, a little, uh, it's basically like a lever that collects what the water collects onto, and when it, it, it uh, reaches a certain weight, it tips the lever over and that sends an electrical pulse that's recorded and so each electrical pulse corresponds to a certain amount of precipitation. These are excellent for recording uh, very small amounts of precip that are can be very difficult to read and be precise but but like Jeff says when they when we get large events it actually can be overwhelmed and it'll it'll flow faster than it can can keep track of and and uh, then the water will flow over the sides of it and so forth and then we tend to lose uh, uh, in the really intense rainfall events. I, I seem to remember one of these storms where I looked at your weather data on your website uh, it was a late summer early fall uh, several years ago now where we had significant flooding in the area and I looked and I think you recorded like a five inch 
rainfall or something like that. I don't know if you guys remember that storm. That might have been 2016. The big, the big, the rain, big rain, ten inches we had. Yeah, yeah. So I, you know, ter- certainly that's uh, something that uh, you got to validate or whatever uh, with that sight gauge. What you were talking about earlier. As Brad said, the the key thing about the tipping bucket gauge, and we actually have a very good quality one, is they're very accurate. But they're you um, calibrate it with a like a bottle of soda and you drill a certain size hole and then you let the water drip into it and it drips in at a certain pace and at that pace the tipper is extraordinarily accurate and it's within a uh, less than one percent but when the rainfall intensity gets very high then the water comes in through the input hole or puddles up on top and once it puddles up on top some splashes over the side and it doesn't record at all so that's where that's where, as Tom said, it's it's accurate, but at high intensities, especially with a lot of wind, it won't be as accurate as a gauge where it collects. Yeah, I know uh, I, I'm working with Dan Kaiser on a research project where we currently have a weather station on site, and I kind of keep track of the the weather data from that site or just kind of monitor it after it rains to kind of see how much we got there. And I know it'll it'll send a signal at two one hundredths of an inch of precip, which is practically a useless measure. I mean, you're talking about what you know what the, comes overnight with the dew uh, when we're at that level, but but they can be very accurate at low low uh, precip volumes. You know, one of the other things that we were kind of talking about uh, before we started recording was the accuracy of the the wind measurement. I know there's been issues relative to very high winds and uh, whether the the recording instruments are capable of recording those too. Yeah, we've had some issues, I think, with high-speed wind measurements here. Often, Tom, Tom, we rarely get a wind speed greater than 45 or 50 mile per hour recorded, and we know we've had thunderstorm winds that that have reached maximum gusts in excess of that. Um, we We have it narrowed down to a couple things. It could be the instrumentation. It could be the height of our protective fence. Um, and I think that we're going to try to rectify that here in the near future. But, you know, historically, um, it is, it's, it's accurate for normally, you know, winds at the typical wind speed for southern Minnesota, it's very accurate yeah, for So if a farmer wants to look at that data for uh, if they were out spraying and, and wants to use it for, for reference for that, it's going to be accurate. It's just a matter of uh, if you had a uh, some kind of a, uh, damage from a thunderstorm and you want to see what the wind gust was, you're probably not going to get a good accurate reading if it was 70, 80 miles an hour. So so a, a couple of the other things, I guess, that, that, that pique my interest particularly, guys, is uh, solar radiation and uh, the evaporation and how we, how we relate that into evapotranspiration and water use, which, of course, is particularly pertinent this year uh, with as dry as it's been. Yeah, so we actually also have a pan evap, and I forgot to mention that. And it's the standard four-foot pan. It's a foot deep, and you maintain water level in it, and you uh, record it. And we actually used to record that on a daily basis and keep track of the temperature of the water, the max and the min. Um, It was one of those measurements that it becomes very redundant and very difficult to send somebody out there every day to do. So we, we reduced it. We took away the temperature measurement, and now we can typically read the VAP once a week, but we often do it more than once a week. But it gives us an idea of what the potential for evaporation off, and there's, as you said, Brad, there's there's a calibration chart that tells you if it becomes, if there's this much in this pan, then there's gonna be X amount in a lake uh, in, in, the, in the regional area. 
and solar radiation? The solar radiation data, Tom, is something that, to be honest, I've never really paid a lot of attention to. I'm not a meteorologist, um, but I know that it's something that comes up in ag circles and discussions. If we have a month that's really key for like grain fill or, or crop production, typically August or September, and if our solar is really down in those months, um, we'll get a call or we'll get an interest in, from our seed people that say, oh, this could affect grain fill. And, and I know, Tom, you've kind of dabbled in this. I'm going to let you take that one. Yeah, solar radiation, you have good measurements. I mean, it's, it's very easy, and it's, it's kind of fun to look at. We've had some of those really cloudy days when you look at solar and it's way down. I remember last November, we had like a, late November, it was thick clouds all day. And I looked at our solar and it was like 20 when in, in the middle of summer, on a good day in June, it'll be more like 700. So we have good information on solar. And in the circles we are in, a lot of people like to talk about that. And by the way, this year, I think July was down, August was down, it's been smoky. And I've heard some people ask about that. And a number of years ago, I did this, I, I looked at, and. Like you guys said, I've been in the business a long time, and when we get together this time of year, a lot of farmers say, well, soybeans are a sun-loving crop. High solar in August is a good soybean crop. We've got all that information, so I just quickly did a correlation. Solar radiation, average soybean yields. I didn't see a thing. In fact, one of our better soybean years was one of the lower soy solar radiation in August. So. Now, that's my semi-educated point of view. Um, I think maybe, and it makes sense that that's what plants do. They collect solar radiation and make energy out of it. It would make sense that when we have more solar, there should be more energy, there should be more seed. But I wonder if maybe we get enough anyway, and even if we're down a little bit, they can still get their work done. That's well, my take on it. And you have other weird factors. You know, Do you have adequate precip and adequate soil moisture at the time you're having adequate solar radiation you know you've got all these complicating confounding variables that you know if well, you were without and, soil and moisture you might not it might not matter how sunny it is and we track uh, crop progress with heat units which doesn't take that into account at all so you but know then, then there's that there were there were plenty of weird theories thrown around this summer with the smoke and and uh, in particular the one I heard was about soybean pod abortion and I just I don't want to go down that rat hole but a lot of people have a lot of uh, interesting thoughts on that so well that, that that brings up something I guess the direction we want to go so we've kind of talked about what you guys have here and and what's collected uh, let's talk a little bit about this year I know Tom you came with some numbers uh, this is uh, I think everybody knows it's been an extraordinarily dry year, but we also have all been kind of scratching our heads and marveling that uh, uh, it doesn't look as dry as it really has been. Well, let's yeah, let's talk about that. Right this morning, I updated our figures. 2021, warm and dry. Certainly, no question about that. We are, as of today, when we're recording, 2,435 growing degree units. We usually get about 2,500. Um, there's some years, in fact, I think like one out of five years, we don't get to 2,435. So we're ahead of normal on solar. Never been a problem. One thing that I would preface that with, Tom, is that 
the, the, the audience should remember that we start our, our heat growing degree units on May 1st, because that is the standard start time. And we stop them at the first killing frost, which is a 32 degree temperature. So that's where our total is established from. That's a good point. And you will see sources of information. Now, it, last time I checked um, Minnesota Ag Statistics, they like to start when their estimate that 50% of the corn is in the ground. Could be before May 1, could be after May 1. We always start May 1, and I'm really confident that that's the best way for us to do it because we like to compare year to year. And when you start on April 15th one year and May 15th the other year, you, you really don't get that. I can see why Minnesota Egg Statistics maybe wants to do that because they're trying to correlate it to corn yields well, and all and, those things. And I don't want to run off on a tangent here because we're kind of going off to the side of where you started, Tom. But we had a conversation about that with this year with, uh, with uh, corn planting being as early as the 8th, 9th of April in some places. Uh, but then we also kind of look at needing a certain number of heat units to get germination. Yet, on the other hand, in some cases, it, it wasn't wet enough to get germination. So the, the question kind of becomes, if somebody's keeping track of those heat units in April, what, are, they, are they even necessarily useful always? Oh, I think they are. But even in a good April, you just don't get that many. 150 is a pretty darn good April if you want to start then. And it takes about that many just to get corn to emerge. So I, I really feel that the May 1 starting date, and I'm glad Jeff brought that up because that is crucial that we start every year on May 1, and I think it gives us a, a real good historical perspective on things. So it's been warmer than normal, drier than normal. We are down, if you look at our growing season, if you look at the year, we're really it's been quite dry. And everyone seems to compare to 1988. It seems to be everyone, whether you're in farming or anybody in the, you know, the Twin Cities news media, they always put up a comparison to the hot, dry year of 1988. So let's, we are three degrees cooler this year than the May 1 to August 31 period in 1988. So we're cooler and we are four inches wetter than 1988. And I looked at, corn yields were down about 15% in 1988 statewide, so I think we can do a lot better than that this year. You know, on the other point, I guess it's worth bringing up with 88, and uh, everybody has uh, years of their life that they remember more poignantly. 1988 was the year I graduated from high school, and so I, I have a pretty keen memory of that year. And the thing I remember specifically about the drought that year was it was actually abnormally dry in this area in 1987. And so we, we actually started off in a bad place to begin the year, whereas uh, while I think a lot of us realize that we had a long dry stretch last fall, I, I think, uh, uh, am I remembering correctly, Jeff, that we had some precip towards the end of September last year that got to the point where we pretty much saturated the soil profile and then then it got dry. But of course, we were heading into cool temperatures and really probably didn't see a lot of, uh, just a whole lot of precip. So we, we started off in a very different place this year than we did in 88. 
Yeah, we were, we pretty much had a full profile through at least most of South Central Minnesota and probably all of Southeastern Minnesota starting the growing season back in early April. But I think as Tom mentioned, you know, March was fairly dry or April, it was extraordinarily dry. So it, it was concerning, but yeah, you, you get a very dry, maybe top four or five, six inches of the topsoil, but there's plenty of moisture in the profile below that. But the key thing is, as we'll probably get to it in a moment, is getting those seeds to germinate when it gets that dry in the springtime. But you're right, Brad, 88 followed a very dry 87 that had a subsoil deficit to start with. So any the lack of precip was a big part. Well, of the it. other thing about 88 was, and, and Tom, I don't know if you came with any wind data, but I seem to remember it, this blast furnace winds in 88 um, that we we didn't really see that kind of a thing. And, and you know, and there's been a lot of conversation about the trend of higher relative humidities over the last several decades. Uh, I seem to remember 88 was just dry. I mean, the air, I think it got cool overnight because the relative humidity was so low versus it, we, we're actually staying fairly warm overnight right now. Well, I sure did notice that this year, a lack of wind. I mean, we had warm temperatures, especially in June. We had a uh, trial where we were trying to spray in the wind using a hooded sprayer to try and simulate some drift. And we had to pick one day and it the wind was uh, about 15 miles an hour that day, and it didn't do it again for about two and a half weeks. We And you guys all know this, I like to golf. And you remember windy days when you're golfing. We didn't have any this year. It was uh, it was quite calm. So a couple things that stand out. We, you know, we talked about how dry it was, but I think a couple things you guys alluded to and that amaze me is how did we get a pretty darn good-looking crop with the little bit of rain we had. I think it's a testament to where we live, our soil water holding capacity, and the crops potential to get that water, mine it out of the soil. I think that's very good. The other thing is we timed what little rain we did get very well this year. It was, we, our records, I think we only went eight days without a measurable rainfall. And other years we haven't done that. So. We, we metered our rain very well this year, and I think we're going to be a lot better off than the records are going to show. So, Tom, you mentioned the 87-88 the kind of combination dry and then even more dry, sort of building this deficit over the course of two growing seasons. Uh, most recently here this year, we've had some pretty significant precip uh, the last couple of weeks here. How much recharge have we seen uh, if we look at the weather data here? Oh, we're still, for the year, we're still at least 10 inches short of normal. Okay. So we, I mean, it's not drought busting. We haven't recharged the soil. I think uh, that rain we did get may have helped the soybeans a little bit, corn to a very limited extent, but it does, it does help out a little bit. I would expect we'll need a fall, and if we don't get a good fall recharge, uh, we in this area can, can see a good spring recharge too. I think that uh, when you think of the recharge of the soil profile after the harvest this fall, it really comes down to a few things. One is the landscape position is pretty important. 
we had the rain that we had in at the end of August. Some of it came pretty in, in, intense rainfall. So we had water that maybe ran off some of the higher ground and didn't infiltrate. So some of that higher ground might still have a pretty decent subsoil moisture deficit. And some of the lower landscape positions maybe collected some runoff and then that seeped into the soil and, and maybe mitigated some of that deficit. I would say we probably have at least a three, if not four, and maybe even up to five inch deficit in the profile um, in most fields. Now, is that an astronomical amount? No, and we still have the whole month of September, where a month that has pretty low evapotranspiration, and we have most of October and early November. November is typically a dry month, and October has kind of been hit or miss the last 10 years. But I think Mark Silly wrote in his newsletter last week that if we just have normal precip, um, which is kind of where the models are trending for the next two months, I wouldn't be surprised that the majority of our deficit will probably be gone by the time the soils freeze up in late November. So another another thing that gets thrown around, uh, estimates of when we get snowfall over the w- course of winter, you know, you'll hear the, the number most frequently I've heard thrown around is like 80% of that melt runs off. Is that is that an accurate assumption or does anyone have a good handle on, you know, if we end up with a really snowy winter, does that make a difference? It all depends. And I hate to tell you that, but it's the truth. <laughs> you know, last year was a very unusual year because we didn't get so freeze up till really late. But it was I remember also, it was it was the last week of December. Yeah. We still had I looked at it the other day. Our soils got to where they were froze at six at a six inch depth, not till after Christmas, which is uh-huh. really late. Now now they probably were froze at a top two or three inch depth, but when there's no snow cover and very mild temperatures that isn't much for frost if you had a significant precip event but then you come back to the snow now if the ground isn't froze when you get your first wet snow it'll actually hardly freeze up at all and some of that snow can slowly infiltrate into the soil as it as it melts underneath the can kind of the the pack of the snow top but typically what happens is you get a couple three inches of frost in the soil and then you get a snow on top and the snow then the frost depth just continually gets deeper and deeper until mid to late february and then it kind of stops and then it's gradually thaws out from the below up and from the top down and you're right march a lot of that snow melt is runoff on your rolling topography over in southeast minnesota i would think your 80 percent number is probably pretty accurate here in the in these till plain where we've got kind of prairie potholes it kind of redistributes you you drive through your fields and you'll in march and you'll see ponded areas where the water snow melt has landed and if there's not a surface inlet there it's going to infiltrate once this once the soil profile or once the frost leaves the soil here's another way to look at it our normal liquid equivalent precip we get in january february and march is less than five inches uh-huh. our normal for june is over five inches so if every drop of or every flake of snow entered the soil as soil water it still wouldn't equal what we usually get in june Hmm. it's not it's not a big at least in this part of the world snow entering the soil isn't a big water recharge factor so 
All right, we've talked, uh, hit a lot of the stuff we wanted to cover today. Uh, I guess one of the things, though, that I also wanted to mention is what is the network of, of uh, taking climate readings across the state at the ROCs and, and uh, how, do, how do farmers, if you're producers or anybody else, listening to the podcast, how do they access that, inf- that information? Well, you mentioned one thing I do is weekly I put out rudimentary weather data, growing degree units, rainfall, and uh, where we are and try to correlate what I see out there. In the spring of the year, I try to make available two and four inch soil temperatures. I think people are really interested in that in the spring of the year when they're planting. Some people like to look at, you know, where is the soil temperature? And first thing you learn is soil temperature goes up and down just like the air temperature. A lot of people that aren't involved in agriculture, they tell me, what's the soil temperature? Like all of a sudden it's 50 and it stays there and it never gets cold again. Well, that look at our charts in the spring. The other thing I try to do is in the fall of the year, I try to post our six inch soil temperatures because uh, nitrogen applications and people doing the smart thing that Brad would like them to do um, should be concerned about soil temperatures in the fall. So I, I make them available. Jeff, maybe you want to talk about more of the network that's out there and, and what we uh, hope to see in the near future. Yeah, I would say most of our other research and outreach centers and our ag experiment stations like at Becker uh, and Staples, they have weather stations and they record most of the same data that we record. Um, Some of them presented in a little different way. I know I've looked at Lambertons on a regular basis. Um, They present basically the same information. Uh, One of the things that we haven't done in recent years, and this is partly due to the university guidelines for web for websites is we don't maintain like PDF files of data going back 20, 10, 20 years. We used to do that. We used to have every month daily data going back to who knows what date. But now it stops after about two years back. And if growers are interested in looking farther back than that, they would need to contact us and we could get it to them. But we published the max min high for the day, the precip, the evaporation on a weekly basis, and this is in the summer growing season, uh, the soil temps, as we mentioned, the solar, and also um, the wind. And those are the key things that we, that we report in our, and that can be found on our data or on our website under the weather tab. So you go to uh, Google soil, Southern Research and Outreach Center and uh, go to the weather tab, which is at the top, and it'll drop down to a menu of four or five choices. One is Tom's uh, weekly rep- or, uh, summary. One is the daily data that's just logged every day and put up there most days, almost five, sometimes six days a week. And then the other is the monthly and annual summaries. Uh, so that's, and that's pretty typical format at the other re- research and outreach centers. So Tom, you mentioned uh, back to that two inch soil depth in, in spring and with how dry it was this year, not totally changed subject here, but with how dry, did you see some pretty extreme temperatures in that, uh, that two inch depth or two and four inch depth? Yeah, that's a good point. When, when soils are wet, usually they don't move that much, but when they were dry like they were this spring, and we saw a lot of people plant corn plenty early and it laid in dry soil, unusual situation, something I haven't seen before, and gave me the opportunity to do something I'm kind of looking forward to. I always do a planting date study and I started planning April 20th. My last date is in late May. 
And I went out there to plant the last date, and I took stand counts on my April 20th planting, and I had about 15,000 plants. And at that point, I think a lot of growers would say, this is a failure, I'm going to replant. Well, I didn't do that because I already had another planting date coming up. Now, it rained shortly after that, and we did get good stands. In you know, I plant about 36,000 in there. I ended up with 32,000. After everything came up, it just took five to six weeks for some of that early planted corn to come up. Now I've marked each plant. I'm going to see what what those late comers brought, and we'll have you know the stand left compared to a new stand. So it's going to give me a unique opportunity to learn something this year. And every year I'm in agriculture, and it's quite a few years now. I always say I've never seen that before, and <laughs> this year I've never seen a spring like this where five corn sat in dry soil. Five to six weeks to get emergence, yeah, that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty insane. <laughs> Here's another thing that I noticed this year that I'd like Brad and Jeff's take on it. As I drove around the countryside, you could go 50 miles this summer, and all the corn had good green color to it. I don't, usually you find some fields that look problematic. But this year, I'd like your explanation to why all the corn had good color up until now. Of course, we're seeing, we're seeing normal senescence. The corn, as far as corn is concerned, we're near the end. It's ready to senesce. But boy, in July and August, it looked good all year. Yeah, well, there weren't a lot of conditions, at least in south-central Minnesota or southwest, and, and maybe a little bit in places in southeast at the later part of the growing season where we had excessive moisture and what we would consider leaching and denitrifying conditions. That just was pretty absent throughout most. I know I know, Brad, up where you were in that, in that uh, northern uh, Wasika, southern Lesseur County, you guys caught a couple of really hard rains, about four inches. Was that in late June or early July? Yeah, right. Yeah. So there were some probably low-lying areas of fields where water ponded and probably saw some denitrification. But, boy, in the rest of the southern Minnesota, between Highway 14 and down to the Iowa border, you're right, Tom, corn with beautiful deep green color and looked fantastic from basically from the state edge to the state edge for most of the growing season. Yeah, it's a topic, actually Dan Kaiser and I have been having kind of a running conversation about this because we're currently doing a project to recalibrate the pre-plant soil nitrate test. And it really comes down to this issue of the what we have for available soil nitrogen uh, either from mineralized sources or from carryover from unused fertilizer from the previous year that's sort of inherent from one year to the next that that while we don't take an make an effort to measure that unless we think it's it's an abnormally large amount there is that amount that kind of carries over from one year to the next that again is just inherent in in our production systems therefore it's inherent in our research the, some of the extremes we've seen in precipitation the last several years may have changed our paradigm on that. We may be looking at, in, in extraordinarily wet years, uh, we actually are starting at a deficit we don't normally start at where we need, may need to adjust nitrogen rates up. And this last year was just the opposite. Uh, like Jeff mentioned, and we've trying to been drill, drilling home to all farmers that the loss processes of nitrogen are water-based and we didn't have excessive water, therefore we just flat out didn't lose any. And so I think there was another combination 
Um, because of how wet it's been the last several years, A, it has taken more nitrogen to produce a crop. And therefore, I, I think some producers have been bumping their rates up. And then B, we just simply didn't lose anything. You normally would lose some amount. Um, but then the other part of this is, as you mentioned, Tom, the the timely precip that we got, which was, uh, you know, just enough to keep nitrogen moving as it's nitrate. It primarily is moving with water flow. It's not a cation exchange like, say, potassium is. Uh, and so as long as you've got some moisture at that in the top of the rooting zone, it's going to keep nitrogen running into the plant. And so that, that uh, had uh, kept the consistency of the green color throughout the growing season. I did note, though, um, right towards the end of summer, uh, we did start seeing some yellow pockets in places. Uh, it kind of varied from one field to the next, which told me it was uh, probably management specific i would guess it was more management specific than it was corn hybrid specific um and i think what was going on there because we didn't see extreme drought stress uh, there was extreme drought stress in some parts of the state and um particularly with some soil types that were lighter uh, but in general our clay loam glacial till soils in southern minnesota didn't really run out of precip until right towards the end we had about a week that things got a little dicey uh, but what happened in some of those fields was the nitrogen was all up in that top foot and it was getting the last bit of precip way down at three feet or even down to four feet and uh, not a lot of nitrogen there and so we did start seeing a few yellow pockets then all of a sudden we got rain again yeah the only thing i would add to what brad said is is his comment about uh the residual N or amount of N carried over in the, to the spring of the, of the, in the soil for the crop for the next year. And I think the point there that's, that's really important that he mentioned is it was probably the first time since going back to maybe the 2012 growing season where we didn't have either a wet fall the previous year or a wet spring. And you get one of those two and then you don't have that kind of that leftover N laying around. And it, we, had, we had went quite a few years without one of those two things or without both of those things happening or one of the two of them and resulting in not a lot of leftover in. Yep. So staying on that nutrient management theme and switching nutrients, Jeff, you had a video you posted to, to Twitter, I think. I don't know if it's hosted somewhere else, but some of your sulfur research that you're doing here on, on station and uh, uh, some pretty dramatic visual you know differences between no sulfur treatment and treatment of i think it was like 20 pounds of sulfate sulfur yeah so actually that's dan kaiser's study and i kind of stole his thunder on that one i apologize dan <laughs> um yeah so he said it's a long-term sulfur study i think this is the third year at wasika i think he's going to do one more year um, it's got three different sulfur sources. It has uh, sulfate sulfur, which in this case is potassium sulfate. It has elemental, which is a common product, Tiger 90, which is the pastilles of sulfur. And then it also has uh, a micronized, uh, finely ground elemental sulfur, in this, in this case, MST. So uh, it's very interesting that we've seen, and other people have seen it and people have talked about it, we've seen really large responses to sulfur here at the at the SROC and corn on corn many times and this was one that was so dramatic and so almost unbelievable but it's a combination of a few factors I think the dry conditions are as a big part of it the treatments he applied were applied in the spring 
an elemental sulfur bread applied in the spring in a dry year and it has to oxidize and it and it was cool early on it just it's just not available and he's shown it in the past he's got a chart and it's i've got it on a slide here he showed that uh over the few years of the study that that uh, elemental as tiger 90 had about 25 percent of the effectiveness as a sulfate source so you'd need uh, 20 pounds to get a five pound nutrient supply and that's pretty much what we've seen so and then the other factor ryan that came into play in that study that that resulted in the ear that had no kernels yeah was corn rootworm oh okay so you you've got a field that's got good healthy corn you've got a field that's got corn that's two weeks behind in maturity and the rootworms in that field it's three years corn on corn just okay. hammered those check plots okay and they have they have they chewed off and ate most of the silks and a lot of those kernels never got pollinated. And there, there's one of those ears on that table in that video Doesn't has have no kernels. kernels. Yeah. Well, one of the other things I guess I'll mention, Jeff, uh, I'm working with Dan on, on a sulfur trial also on soybeans this year, and it's in Lesseur County on a Lester soil with lower organic matter. Uh, not able to do in-season visuals like you can with ears of corn, but there's visual differences in the plots. And so it'll be interesting to see uh, that also on the soybeans when, when the yield uh, data comes in. I, I expect Dan will be, uh, will be uh, presenting that data here this, this winter and, and uh, coming into the spring. So if I want to use elemental sulfur, though, the moral of the story would be to make a fall application to give it time, or do I need to no, I, consider it, a different plan? What's really unique about this, uh, Ryan, is that you know, we're putting it on the same plots over and over again. So we're putting elemental on every year. So if it's going to become oxidized and be available, you would expect it when you put it on every year that it would be available. So it shows that there's the, the weather and the seasonality is, is an issue, and it's a serious issue. So really the sulfate sources on these medium and fine textured soils are really important. If it was applied in the fall, it might have been a little bit better. But if you're going to put it out there with a fall broadcast of P and K and, you know, I don't know, mid-October probably, it's not going to have mineralized all or, or oxidized and become available all that much. Hmm. And I think the other factor that was going on is the mineralization of sulfur from organic matter was also down because of the cool spring and the dry conditions early part in the growing season. So it, it resulted in kind of a perfect storm where the sulfate sources were readily available, the plants looked good, the uh, other sources uh and look their tiger 90 looks like the control and the mst is kind of in between in other years the mst did very well hmm. interesting so so kind of moving off the nutrient management uh, theme and kind of going to some of more of our pestilence tom uh with how hot and dry it was uh, did you see any abnormal abnormal things with uh, weed emergence did you pick up uh, uh Less weed pressure, more weed pressure, a shift in species, anything that you saw? Actually, I think that's a good point. That dry spring when we planted some of our crops, they didn't come up very well. Weeds come from even shallower, a top quarter of an inch. We had very little weed emergence like you'd expect right away. And I was kind of surprised, and I think it really helps what our weeds group has talked about uh, Full rates of soil applied materials still did pretty well, even in, we know and we've talked about, they do very well in 
good conditions. Dry conditions is a little harder for them, but boy, they still made a huge difference. And going way back to some of the thesis work I did, we kind of worked out the economics of some of these full rates of soil applied herbicides, and we convinced a lot of people that it wasn't really costing them that much when you looked at the economics of the whole system. And with all the weeds we've had escaping and people's willingness to deal with that, I think we saw a lot of full rates being used. If, if this dry spring would have hit when people were still in that roundup phase where all you need is a little bit to help you out, half rates of soil applied, we'd have been in a lot worse shape. So the, the old setup rates of the, yeah. in a glyphosate based system, yeah. That, Everybody uh, was, they, they used a few low rates of soil applied and they still counted on roundup to do everything. Well, we've learned that uh, that doesn't always work and I think we did a pretty good job. I think most people were pretty impressed with, with what they got. It, as you had to ease kind of some of the, my observations, um, it was the year of the grass. Uh, in particularly, woolly cup grass just came on and didn't quit. I mean, we went out with the rototiller, another flush came, and it just looked like a lawn. Uh, and for whatever reason, that species seems to do real well in the hot and dry conditions. When it finally quit emerging, uh, we were at a point, at least in Rochester, that uh, we were picking up pretty good precip and things got a little more humid and the crabgrass came on strong so yeah. it, it really it really was a good year for grass weeds it seemed like uh, from my observations well that's why weeds become weeds they can tolerate a lot of these conditions and and yeah I think grass we the small seed of broadleaves with our the rates of things we used worked pretty well on them still plus they come from very shallow you know, weeds that were on the top quarter inch, there's virtually no moisture there for them to emerge. So, yep, it was the year of the grass. And Okay, good to hear. Uh, Brad, anything else that was on your mind today? No, I think that pretty well covers it. So I want to thank our guests again uh, today for participating, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in to the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Thank you. 